Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tracy Kindle. We're at the Nichols J Speakeasy in Dundee. It's August 7th, 2020. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question and most important question for our purposes is why wine? That is a very good question. Um, I think like a lot of people, I'm sure you've heard the story a number of times, sort of fell into it. I um, grew up in a family that didn't drink wine at all, didn't really drink, um, but I had a godfather who lived in Portland and a godmother at that time who were very into the Oregon wine industry. And I didn't realize what that meant sort of growing up, but you know, when we came down as I got a bit older, they would end up opening up beautiful older bottles of Pinot Noir and sort of create that education and background. So that was always underlying um, my wine education, I guess. And in college, so I got a background in anthropology, major in anthropology, um, went on to get a master's in global health. My plan was to work for the Gates Foundation. I lived up in Seattle, born and raised. Um, but my boyfriend and I at the time fell into sort of loving wine tasting. And so we would go out in Woodenville, we traveled to Napa, we came down here a number of times um, and just loved the history, the geology, the connection of wine and people, um, the beauty of the product, the idea that you could have socially sanctioned day drinking <laughs> as a college student was really fun. Um, and I was always the one who would like find the winemaker in the back. You know, I'd go out with my girlfriends and they'd be drinking in the front or my boyfriend and I would be finding the winemaker. I wanted the tour. I wanted to know sort of the complexity of it. And so that was sort of happening in the background of all this other education and other life plans. Um, I ended up leaving him, um, called off a wedding and was having a bit of an existential crisis about global health in general. Most of the people in my program were um, also MDs and I was not. And so the idea behind this job for me would be I would go into a developing country, help set up a public health system and leave. And I had fundamental issues with that philosophy um, that we could probably do a whole other interview about. So thought about law school, thought about medical school, and came down here to visit my godparents and they suggested, why don't you work a harvest? You need to clear your head. You've got a lot going on right now. Get your hands dirty. Like you'll end up knowing something wonderful about wine your whole life that you'll be able to talk to friends about and you don't have to become a winemaker. You don't ever have to do it again, but it just gives you, you know, two months of making money. And so came out to the valley, ended up landing a gig very last minute at Tory Moore. Um, no idea what I was getting myself into. No idea that I would be the first female to ever work in Jacques' cellar, Jacques Tardy, um, and no idea really what that even meant. So, you know, got all my, like, my mom helped me outfit all the clothes, got some winemaking books, you know, all the jackets we bought were like maroon and burgundy, got some cool overalls, um, and showed up and really just caught the bug. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know any other way to describe it. I think wine does that to people in production, right? It's like you work that harvest and you realize either, I love to travel, I love the transient lifestyle, I love the money, but you know, eventually I'm gonna go on to have a real job. Or you do it and realize pretty much you're a janitor and that's terrible, so I'm never gonna do this again. Or you fall in love with it and you see the magic and the beauty behind the janitorial work. And I was always the one who was asking to stay late and clean the press and you know, wanted to know more about everything that was going on. 
I got pigeonholed to the lab, which happened for many harvests as a female. Um, I think that's one of the big challenges for interns. Um, but the reality is as frustrating as that was being like a young woman who wanted to do the heavy lifting, I ended up learning a lot everywhere I went because you're in the lab with the winemaker. Even if you're not doing like critical winemaking decisions, you're overhearing it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that allowed me to progress more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, because Jacques had never worked with a woman, he tended to blame me for most things that went wrong, regardless of whether I was even near any of those things. Um, and I remember being frustrated by that um, and also challenged by it. Like, I'm gonna prove that, you know, I can do this, that I'm great at this. And we had a wonderful team of young, like Newberg guys that took me under their wing and took care of me. And John, his assistant winemaker was fabulous and very kind. Um, and I was also had started dating one of the interns down at Christum who'd been there for a long time. So I ended up halfway through Harvest moving down to Christum. So I had this simultaneous education of Jacques' style of winemaking and um, Steve Dorner's style of winemaking. So I would get up with the guys, you know, at 11 o'clock and do midnight punch downs and try to learn from them, not every night, but sometimes, mm -hmm. um, be around them with, for dinner, you know, hear sort of that winemaking. And then I would go work during the day with Jacques. And they're very different styles of winemaking. I think that they both make beautiful wines. Um, one is a little bit more chemistry-based and formulaic, and one is much more instinctual, I think, and much more kind of uh, ritualistic, <laughs> um, and, and you can feel that in the wine, and I think that's really just kind of a stylistic choice. But long story short, I ended up becoming great friends with Jacques. I remember we were at the harvest party, my first harvest party, and we were all having dinner at John Tomaselli's house, and in the middle of this whole thing, Jacques goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, someone called from Australia today about a recommendation for you. I told him you were great, and I was like, no, I was trying to get this job, I was gonna travel abroad, I was so nervous and so excited, and um, the fact that he supported me and said wonderful things meant a ton, mm -hmm. because he wasn't an instant believer, I don't think. He may say that differently, but that was the feeling I got. And for years after that, I would go taste in the cellar every time I came back. And, you know, he's still very kind when I see him. Mm -hmm. So it was um, a wonderful first harvest, challenging, impressionable. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just started traveling after that, as most young people do. Before, what could be better? Exactly. Before <laughs> we get into that, I do have some questions about your travel. But I'm, I'm curious about, you mentioned having, being introduced to two very different styles of winemaking right from the start. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what appealed to you about each and, and where did you kind of find your, your interests and your proclivities taking you in terms of your philosophy at that point? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know that I knew enough yet to be able to say that one was superior. I will say that Steve's style, the style at Christum, um, felt more instinctually right to me and had the way that I think I would end up making wine. Um, but there was also a kind of je ne sais quoi, like real magic about that cellar and about that team and the passion you could feel there that I didn't get to be a part of so much at Tory Moore because I was going to work and coming home and Jacques was busy and I wasn't doing, I wasn't socializing mm -hmm. with him. So I think he underlying has a lot of those qualities too, but I don't know that I witnessed them mm -hmm. in that first harvest. Mm -hmm. um, but I have ended up becoming kind of a yeast geek and a um, ferment geek. And so I think that started early on with sort of watching Steve and, and knowing that it's a living thing, right? And so you need to be able to react to it. You need to be able to smell it and taste it and feel it and 
feel the heat and really understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no amount of numbers that can sort of drive you through that. I'm not a particularly formulaic or scientific person. I'm very like big, broad strokes and I love logistics and like big operating systems and sort of passion driven things. I am not a by the numbers, fastidious, um, you know, write everything down, document everything, study the data kind of person. So inevitably that translates to my winemaking too. Mm -hmm. And I've always been that way, even though I don't think I could have um, articulated that at that point mm -hmm. in my career. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you mentioned being bitten by the bug and, and, and the kind of the magic in the janitorial work. I'm curious how quickly that happened for you. And at what point did you start to think this could be something I could do like for a long time. This could be like, this could be a career. Or this could be a path I want to follow. Yeah, I don't think that that happened that first harvest. I think at that stage, it was like, this is, I get to be around a product that I love, right? I think wine is beautiful. Um, the people that I was meeting were wonderful. And I think it was one of the first times in my life where I felt like I really belonged, and really fit in with the culture, which was huge. Mm -hmm. Didn't really feel that way so much in college, really didn't feel that way in high school. And you know, my mom was always like, you're gonna feel that way once you get to college, wait till you get to the sorority. And it just never happened for me. And I felt that way for the first time. Um, and then finding out that you could travel. I had lived in Brazil for quite a while when I was in undergraduate and grad school and loved that experience. And so finding out you could go to all these places and get paid and meet all these people. And um, that I think was more appealing to me than saying, I'm gonna be a winemaker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I certainly thought it had cachet, that it was pretty cool, that it might be a fun sort of place to end up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think after that first harvest, I was still thinking at some point, I'll go home and grow up, you know? <laughs> get a real job. Oh, thank goodness that didn't happen. I know, right? Well, I don't know. Some people would probably disagree, but <laughs> certainly shouldn't have married another winemaker, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so you you have this opportunity to travel, then like you said, kind of a young young in production. So tell us kind of about your, your path from first harvest on and, and kind of th through those early travels. Yeah, so I went from Tory Moore back up to Seattle for a little bit and then went um, and actually did vineyard work. So traveled around New Zealand um, and did some vineyard work down at Felton Road, which is a very well-known estate down in central Otago, um, biodynamic vineyard, which was the first introduction I had to biodynamics ended up being um, a really powerful experience overall, although Felton Road was just like one, one piece of that that I'll talk about. But So worked there for a couple months and then went to Australia for harvest. Worked at Vast Felix out in Western Australia and Margaret River. Um, very different harvest than Tory Moore. <laughs> very different. We were working, you know, the, the Oregon philosophy typically is everybody comes in at the same time and they leave at the same mm -hmm. time and you're a team, right? And it's all about accomplishment and task-based. Margaret River, we you would be on one of two shifts. You either come in at noon and you leave at midnight, or you come in at midnight and you leave at noon. And halfway through, they would give you 62 hours off or something, and then you would switch. Uh -huh. It's like, good luck, you know? And they had a restaurant on site. It was a beautiful winery, gorgeous wines. They had a restaurant on site, and for lunch, they would give you this like airplane food-sized meal packet, and that was the only food that you got. And because of the nature of Margaret River, the grocery stores were closed by the time you left. So it was, I think I lost something like 25 pounds there. And I felt like they were a little bit trying to sort of kill us. Um, and it was big production. So that was something I hadn't seen before either. But still very high in winemaking, 
incredible attention to detail, very high standards. Um, the Australian culture is pretty intense, boisterous, um, you know, in your face, and they tell it like it is. Uh, so it was a great experience. It was um, one of the more challenging harvests I think I've ever worked, though, physically for sure. Um, I did work there with the winemaker Virginia Wilcox, who has remained. There's a couple people along the way where these like nuggets have stuck with me. And the amazing thing about her, she was running this huge estate, right? The entire estate, she was doing a ton of the vineyard stuff. Her husband was also in production. She was this tiny woman with this incredible amount of energy. And she would come into the winery and she would find the worst task, you know, digging out the drains, rinsing the buckets, whatever someone was doing that just looked really awful and join them immediately mm -hmm. and chat with them and work with them for as long as she could. I mean, she was incredibly busy, which I probably didn't appreciate at that point. <laughs> and then she would leave and it changed the entire atmosphere mm -hmm. because often as an intern, what you feel like is you're doing the worst stuff and everybody else gets the good jobs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so if you can change that mindset of like, listen, we've all been there. We're all doing that work. Sometimes it's just not visible. And if we're not doing it, it's because we literally don't have time. Um, that's stuck with me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think hopefully has carried through to sort of my management style. Because mm -hmm. I think that can be one of the places where teams can break down mm -hmm. during harvest. Mm -hmm. Everybody's tired. Everybody's stressed out. It's, it's a rough, it's an awesome time and a really rough time. Um, so it was a, it was a very good vintage. I think it secured for me that I did not want to work at a big place. It's harder to learn at a big place. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like delegates or something where I was press operator number 25. <laughs> Certainly nothing that extreme, but we were doing, I'm trying to remember, 2,500 tons maybe, and we had a tiny team. It was like eight people on each shift. And the, the mistakes that would be made there because people were so tired mm -hmm. and because people didn't know what they were doing um, were also really impactful. I remember it was the I don't know if this is something about being a woman or maybe it was my upbringing, but I never learned how to siphon things. It's like something all men learn when they're like five and I don't know, maybe I missed it, but I feel like girls don't get to learn that. And so I remember going to the top of these huge tanks. I was building the yeast brews because once again, I was in the lab, right? I was very pissed off about it that harvest. And I'm at the top of this tank. I've got this huge yeast brew and I have to get it into the tank. The only way to do it is to siphon it. Mm -hmm. So I understand obviously the the uh, physics of siphoning. So I started to do it and ended up with this huge mouthful of yeast brew. It's really, really disgusting. But anyway, that was an impactful moment there. Um, so yeah, then I decided that I wanted to come back to Washington and try to live close to my family, which has always been my plan to have a family near my family. I love Seattle. And Seattle has Woodenville, which is really neat. Mm -hmm. um, it's so anyway, so I applied for um, a bunch of jobs in Woodenville. Ended up working for a small producer there named Darby, um, which was the complete opposite. It was like me and Darby, and that was it. Um, very small production, high attention to detail. He's a pretty soft-spoken person, and so, um, you know, I tended to work a lot on my own. I don't know that I learned a ton, but I certainly saw a different way of being, and I really got to see how um, a small business operates, mm -hmm. how hard it is to have a winery. That has stuck with me forever. <laughs> this idea of, it seems so fun to make your own wine and it, how neat, 
but then you have to sell it. And then you have to do all the other things that go along with that. And you really get pulled away from the craft, right? If you love making wine, it's often very hard to maintain the ability to get to make your wine when you're running that small business. Mm -hmm. So that was really powerful. It was also very strange to be disconnected from the vines. And that ultimately was the reason I didn't stay. I stayed with him for almost nine months. So did harvest, worked in the tasting room, and then had started that summer and then decided that I needed to get back out and be near the vines again. Um, Felton Road, obviously I was in the vineyard. Um, Margaret River, you know, that was all estate vineyards for Felton Road, I'm pretty sure, or mostly estate vineyards. And so, you know, this feeling that it all begins in the vineyard was already sort of planted for me. Um, applied for a bunch of jobs in New Zealand, decided that New Zealand would be a good place to go check out. I like, really liked Felton Road and really liked traveling around there and somehow got picked to work at Saracen, which is still kind of one of those unicorn wineries. And I remember a lot of people asking me how I got that job. And I asked the winemaker, Clive, and he's like, something about your resume reminded me of Alexis, who I really like, and she works with us. <laughs> Super diverse too, and likes the global health background, and it was just kind of luck of the draw. So traveled over there and worked at Saracen. Um, an amazing place. It's another biodynamic vineyard and winery, um, and was a really, interesting juxtaposition to Felton Road. Mm -hmm. Both biodynamic, but very different in their approaches. Felton Road felt to me like it was more of a marketing approach to biodynamics. Let's push the boundaries, let's buy, you know, sort of buy the preps, push the boundaries of what we can do within biodynamics. Mm -hmm. and, and again, my experience there was much shorter. So if I had worked in the winery, perhaps I would have felt differently, but that was my feeling in the vineyard. Whereas at Saracen, it was the, it was the core of who they were, right? They grew all their own food so that they could feed the people who were working in the vines. They had the first horse-drawn tractor built so that they would have no machinery on site. Um, you know, everything was native yeast. Everything was low intervention. Um, it was just really magical to see. So the beauty of that fruit, the sort of wildness of that fruit, which mm -hmm. is hard to get in New Zealand. I think New Zealand tends to be pretty clean Pinot Noir, pretty fruit-driven clean Pinot Noir, and there was more complexity from that. Um, and just an incredibly fun group of people. Mm -hmm. It was a really, really fun harvest. And another young woman who worked there, this Alexis, who's actually making kombucha now in Nova Scotia, where she's from, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, she worked there with her husband, they worked together. Um, and she was another woman who pushed herself to the limit. And she, had to prove that she could do everything the guys could do in the cellar. To the point where her ribs would pop out, she'd have to go to the doctor and the chiropractor in the middle of harvest. And I just remember thinking, you don't have to be the same to be as good as, right? You don't have to be as strong. You can be smarter. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be as, uh, have as much endurance. You can be better at multitasking, right? There are different ways to bring skills to the table and that that was another really impactful moment for me that I've also carried through. We are not the same, but we can still be equal, right? And still be valuable. Sure. So then after that, I got the job at Adelsheim and that was going to be for Harvest 2011. Uh, and I remember doing the interview with Gina on the phone and her saying in the spring of 2011, we think we're gonna have a harvest. We're like a month and a half late. So if we have a harvest, we would like to offer you the job. But we don't really know if it's gonna happen. Um, so I was like, great, you know, I'll come and, come and check it out. So I went home for the summer and then came down and uh, ended up living with Bub and Sarah, who are really good friends of ours now. And 
um, ended up falling quite quickly in love with my now husband, who was the seller master, who'd just been hired full-time at Adelsheim. And because it was 2011, they started us all, I think like the second week of September, third week of September, we just start picking to like October 20th. So we had this great long time to hang out and get to know each other and <laughs> it was awesome. So I had a good first harvest at Adelsheim. Again, very different, bigger production, but very focused on high-end, small quality lots and a very big harvest team you know, like 11 people. So it was the opposite of something like Felton Road, where it was actually quite cushy and relaxed and controlled. And I remember thinking, so harvest doesn't have to be about sort of wanting to hurt yourself, right? Like feeling like you're gonna die halfway through. Um, yeah, and then they hired me a full-time job at the end of that, the end of that harvest, after still finding out that I was dating their cellar master and <laughs> didn't seem to care. So. Why Adelsheim when you were coming back? Like, what brought you? What did you want to go back to Oregon? Did you want? Mm -hmm. Was it? Was there a certain kind of a goal here or a draw here? Yeah, I think at that point, um, I had realized between sort of the wines I had had with my godfather, with my experience at Tory Moore and Christum and everything I had tasted when I was here. Not only did I love the community that was still here, um, but I really felt like the wines were some of the best in the world. Um, and the potential for world-class wine here while still being small enough that you can get it on the ground floor and be a part of something um, was really powerful. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, you know, I would have loved to do a harvest in Europe. I would have loved to do a harvest in California, but those weren't it on the radar. Mm -hmm. I never applied for any positions down there or really even thought about it. So there was something drawing me back to Oregon and to Pinot Noir. So you spent a lot of time traveling, kind of bouncing, temporary. Tell me about finding full-time work and, and what appealed to you about it and, and kind of growing into a job where you're out of place for more than a few months or more than a year at a, at a time. Yeah, um, you know, I think if I hadn't met Aaron, who's my husband, I probably would have kept traveling a little bit more. Um, I don't know that I was quite done, but there was a part of me that was sort of wanting to settle down for a little bit and, mm. and have a community. Adelsheim to me was a really exciting place to be. Just the wines that they were making, you know, Dave Page, in contrast to some of the people I've talked about before, is an open book. If you stand near Dave Page, the osmosis of learning is just extreme. And so being able to be a part of that, I mean, they're a very incredibly inclusive winery where everybody tastes, everybody's involved in decision making, everybody gets to know what's going on and why. Um, the learning there was just tremendous. And so being able to continue to progress in that direction, to continue to work with him and with Gina and with the team there um, was really appealing. There's also, you know, and people talk about it probably even more so now, but if you get a full-time job, you should take it because they're, they're few and far between, especially at a place that you're excited about and a situation that's good. So I think the combination of all those things, wanting to stay with Aaron, who I just met, um, feeling like Adelsheim was a really fantastic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And a big part of my godfather's cellar was Elizabeth Reserve, like back to when it first started. Mm -hmm. And so those were some of the wines that really um, sort of carried me, especially the older Adelsheims. You know, you can make wines that have a higher acidity, lower alcohol, just so incredibly age-worthy. Mm -hmm. And wanting to learn how to do that. I'm curious, before before I go on, I, I you have all these varied harvest experiences and you find Adelsheim to be this this kind of place that's collaborative and inclusive and, and more 
why was why isn't that more common? Why why what why was Adelsheim so sort of able to make that work where other places were more like you say dying halfway through harvest? <laughs> I think that's about that piece is about being willing to hire enough people. And Adelsheim had a very and still does probably very complex way of making wine in that unlike anywhere else I've ever worked harvest each intern was assigned to a task. So when you do that, you end up specializing people. You probably have fewer mistakes, mm -hmm. um, but you inevitably need almost twice as many people because those people can't do multiple things for you. Mm -hmm. So by nature, there was just a much larger team. So we would kind of split shift. You'd have the like 6, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and then you'd have the 10, 11 a.m. to 10, 11 p.m. So, you know, 12 hour days, which in harvest world is cruisy. Um, <laughs> it's short, it's fine. Um, so yeah, I think part of why it felt easy was that structure. Mm -hmm. I think the learning there is about the fact that Dave was so open. And it, that's personality, right? I mean, I work now very closely with Jean-Nicola, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and he's just a shy person and a quieter person. Incredibly articulate, incredibly bright. But when he and I are walking through the vineyard together, unless I ask him something, he's going to be silent. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you walk through a vineyard with Dave Page, unless you tell him to be quiet or shut up, he's never going to. So just, you just have to be around him, right? And that at that stage in my career was so incredibly valuable. And I think that was the exciting piece. And I was given a lot of responsibility really early. I, that's at Adelsheim, I was running red fermentation, which is what I continued to do the whole time I was there. And that's, I think where I really fell in love with fermentation science and that instinctual piece of fermentation understanding temperatures and what that means. I remember the first harvest, a gentleman named Ryan was doing it and he was out for three days sick. And I remember Dave handing me like the fermentation records and explaining things quickly and being like, here, you manage it for the next few days. And just feeling so incredibly lost, not knowing what that data meant, not knowing what he meant by trying to manage temperatures. And then it kind of clicked. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, it's been something that for me is very intuitive and very um, nurturing and very challenging but rewarding because you can really shepherd I mean, it's the time that you're going to make the most impact on the wines with red wine and so being able to shepherd these wines through that mm -hmm. and feel like i have a handle on that is quite fun part of winemaking for me so tell me about your uh kind of experiences at adelsheim beyond that and, and then sort of what you what your next step was yeah, so I ended up being there for five years total, I think. Okay. About five years, four years. Um, and I started out in the cellar and then ended up moving to enologist, I think maybe a year and a half or two years into my time there and really focusing on the lab, which came out of that fermentation science. It was a bit inauthentic because I'm not classically trained. Throughout all my travels, I ended up doing the UC Davis program. And so I had that winemaking background, but I met, you know, I wish I could go back in time and actually have gone to school for winemaking. But by the time I had gotten to winemaking, it was like, I can't take more time off and accrue more debt. I already have a master's degree that I'm not using. So I was not, I'm just not a scientifically minded person. If I, I can understand chemistry and biology and winemaking, but it's not the way my mind goes. And so Adelsheim is a relatively scientific place. Gina has an incredible background in science. Um, and so I think it was a little bit of a misfit for me. Um, and maybe for them too, but um, still really 
I mean, just the number of things that I got to see there over the course of time. And everyone who works there, you know, my husband obviously was trained there as well, feels that way that you, in so many wineries, if you're the seller hand, you know, you may be invited to taste a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you might be included in some higher level winemaking discussions a couple times a year if people are thoughtful and doing it and taking the time. But at Adelsheim, we were all included in that every day. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like it was a fast track of education because something that would have probably taken eight or 10 years, I was able to do in a really short period of time mm -hmm. and carry with me. Mm -hmm. It's a very intensive tasting place. And they're also, at that point, they're not so much anymore, but at that point they were sourcing from vineyards all over the valley. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember how many different vineyards we were working with, but probably 12 or 13 and they would rotate and we were making tons of single vineyards and so the experience with different AVAs and different very high-level vineyards throughout the valley was really phenomenal as well um, so yeah it's just it's a really special place mm -hmm. what's the next step so in 2014 I remember very vividly Dave Page coming into the lab um, and saying, David Adelsheim has invited two gentlemen to come make wine here. One is a man named Jay Boberg, who's a music guy. If you like music, here's his credentials. Very exciting. Um, the other one is Jean-Nicolas Mayo. None of you can afford to drink his wine. He's from Burgundy, but he's a big fucking deal. <laughs> we were all like, okay, <laughs> noted. So they came in to make wine. David Adelsheim had basically invited Jay and Jean-Nicolas to start Nicholas Jay, their project at Adelsheim. They didn't want to invest in infrastructure of a winery first and foremost. Um, they wanted to put all of their money and resources into grapes, mm -hmm. one of the best vineyards we can source from. Mm -hmm. And so they were bringing in a winemaker from the outside to sort of help facilitate the day-to-day, -day, but we would be also sort of shepherding that process through. And so they came in and both very gregarious, kind, open people, particularly Jay is just, he can make friends with a piece of paper. Um, and so was their winemaker. And so they came in and inevitably their winemaker was also doing his wine and I think another project at that point. So being in charge of red fermentation, I would end up working pretty closely with Jay and supporting him and you know, assisting with any kind of ferment issues and making sure they had everything they needed and just got to know the guys really well. Mm -hmm. um, and so they ended up, that winemaker moved on um, in the spring or late winter. And at that point I had started looking for another job. I think the enologist position just wasn't quite right for me. There were some personality conflicts and I was ready to kind of find the next step. Mm -hmm. And I think also ready to work somewhere else that my husband wasn't working. <laughs> Worked together for almost five years, which was super fun, but I was excited to come home at night and be like, so what'd you do today? <laughs> Instead of, I know exactly what you did today. And we found ourselves just like wallowing, you know? I mean, you can't get away from sort of the other person's issues at work. So I had applied for a bunch of jobs. Nothing had really panned out. Um, you know, Nicholas J was an incredibly exciting project at the time. And I remember Dave Page saying, if any of you want to apply for this new position, you have my blessing. Obviously, you know, we know you're all going to move on at some point. Mm -hmm. But I had become friends with their winemaker and so felt kind of funny about it mm -hmm. and didn't really do anything, didn't really do anything. And then I remember a couple months later, Jay was traipsing people through the cellar for interviews. And I thought, shit, I missed, totally missed my window. They never posted anything. They, you know, I never really saw anything. And so I remember I like called my cousin, what should I do? Okay, I'm gonna write this email to Jay. Got to work that morning, composed this long email to Jay. You know, I'm 
sorry if I missed the window. I'm very interested in working for you guys. I respect you, blah, blah, blah. And I remember like, three hours later, Jay came into the lab and he was like, like pulled me out. And he was like, I got your email. You're really doing this right now. We've been doing three months of interviews. We were at the final round. We're gonna offer someone a position on Monday. I think this is Friday. I was like, oh, sorry. Well, I didn't realize, you know, I was trying to be kind. So he's like, okay, Sean Nicola and I are in town. Let's go out to dinner tonight. We'll do a first round interview. We want you to meet another one of the partners, Jonah Beer, on Saturday morning, and then we'll let you know on Sunday. I was like, well, okay. So went out and had a great dinner with the guys and relatively formal interview, even though I knew them quite well. Mm-hmm and then met Jonah in Portland on Saturday. Um, and then they called me on Sunday and offered me the job. So it was a quick turnaround. No, no time to be nervous. There was no time to be nervous. There's a lot of time to be excited. Um, I think there were some people who were quite frustrated. For a while I would go out and they'd be like, oh, you're that girl. But it ended up being a really good fit. So that was March. And then I helped, stayed on for two more months with I think two more months, a month and a half at Adelsheim. Told them I would help train in the summer. Um, started work for Nicholas J for a couple months. Then my husband and I actually got married on June 25th, 27th of that year. <laughs> he always remembers and I don't. June 27th. And then we went to, we were going to Spain for two weeks. So it was all already planned. The mm-hmm. guys were fine with it. And then Jean-Nicolas offered to fly both of us over to Burgundy at the tail end of our honeymoon for a week. So Aaron and I went to Burgundy and stayed with him and got to go in a lot of the amazing cellars there and taste through and very nerve wracking. This is like a new boss. Some great stories about that trip, Um, but a wonderful chance to kind of dive in early on to his life in Burgundy. I remember at dinner, one of the first nights, you know, we're so nervous. We'd been in Spain on our honeymoon, right? And so we're looking up like, etiquette for you know French dinner parties so and we must have ended up on the I think it was the French embassy website and one of the things it said was like never offer to help in the kitchen or with cleanup it's an incredible insult to the host that ended up not being true we had to clarify that a little later on <laughs> apparently not when you're staying with someone that's uh. more for maybe a formal dinner party in the 1910s or something <laughs> um but I remember the first night Jean-Nicolas like passed me the cheese plate and he was like would you like to cut the cheese and so I like took the knife and every time I went to cut it, he was like, oh, 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 Turns out there's a right way to cut every different shape of cheese that I was not aware of. It was, so, on, it was on the embassy website? That feels like that should have been on the on, That should have been the main <laughs> thing on the embassy website, turns out. It's definitely the most complicated part of French dinner parties. But no, it was wonderful. They have great hospitality and just so magical to see Burgundy. I'd never been and the history there, the beauty, the traditions is just phenomenal walk that you know we'd wake up in the morning and walk hike up through Richborg and you know sit at the top and overlook these Grand Cru vineyards and there's nothing like being there to contextualize it and helped I think me to contextualize my job right and what it meant to sort of carry this legacy in Oregon Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that has stuck with me I've had the pleasure of going back a number of times but that first trip was very impactful so tell me about the, the sort of your sort of role as you understood it. Obviously, it's a passion project between a music, a music producer and a winemaker who's in Burgundy. Your role as the person in Oregon, what, how, did they, how did they define it? What was, what was kind of your role to start with and how has it kind of expanded over the years, if, if it has? Yeah, I, I believe early on the job was uh, basically an assistant winemaker. Right. They asked me if I wanted to be assistant or associate, and I said, if I'm going to be representing you, you might as well make me associate because that will carry more clout, right, when I'm out and about. 
But the job was basically to very traditional winemaker, assistant winemaker. Jean-Nicolas was the winemaker. I was the assistant winemaker, except that he wasn't here. And so, you know, he comes for part of harvest. We talk every day during harvest. We talk almost every day outside of harvest, but he couldn't be the one feeling, touching, smelling, right? Mm -hmm. And so I needed to be his eyes and ears and sort of his um, boots on the ground. And that really was the reality for at least the first six months, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least through that first harvest. And if not for the first year, I mean, I remember, because even for me coming from Oregon, it was a huge transition, the relationship that we have with the vineyards mm -hmm. from what I was doing before, where that summer I was in each vineyard at least once a week. And we had 11 vineyard sites in the beginning or 12 vineyard sites in the beginning, um, learning what it meant to be in the vineyards at that stage. And, um, you know, what I was looking for, I didn't speak the language of fruit thinning. I didn't speak the language of ripeness. You know, I hadn't done any of that work before. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big part of sort of those early days. Um, and then shepherding those wines, you know, making that wine with him via, we didn't even have Zoom back then, or maybe it was around, but we weren't that cool. Um, a lot of Skyping, you know, outside in the back of Adelsheim. And we were still making the wines at Adelsheim. So in that way, the transition was pretty easy for me too. Like I was still part of the team. It was all the same guys I'd been working with before. I knew where all the equipment was. I knew how it all worked. So that first year, it was such a blessing that I was way underqualified for what I'd been hired for, but at least I didn't have to work at a brand new facility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had jean Nicola. I mean, people always want to say, well, you're the one who really makes the wine. And I mean, I do on the ground, right? It's my hands, but just like Dave Page was not the one out there doing all the work, right? I mean, the winemaker doesn't have time to really be doing the work a lot of the time, mm -hmm. and, but it's still their vision, still their philosophy, right? We brought the winemaking canvas <clears throat> from Mayo Camazay and applied it to Oregon. So how many times we pumped over, the temperatures we were hitting, how we were doing fermentation, mm -hmm. how long we were letting things settle, Elevage, all of that was from jean Nicola what we were doing in the vineyard, right? And, and what we were dropping and what we weren't and what our target yields were and what chemistry we were looking for. That was all dictated from that. So I had a lot of support from, you know, arguably one of the best Pinot Noir producers in the world who certainly learned from who's considered the best Pinot Noir producer in the world, right? Henri Jaillet. So I remember we had an interview, like 2016. Some reporter was saying to jean Nicola. So you learned from Henri Jaillet and Tracy's learning from you. So it's as if she's learning from Henri Jaillet. And he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. <laughs> but yeah, so those early days were really about um, winemaking. Super fun. It was such a relaxed time. You know, I look back on that as like the halcyon days of Nicholas Jay because Jay was here all through harvest. Again, he's such a fun, open, warm, inquisitive person. Mm -hmm. We're doing it together. Um, and really in the off season, there was an off season and, um, yeah, we were just growing and excited. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we had to start selling wine. So I worked my first har full-time harvest with them as an employee was in 15. Mm -hmm. We launched the brand in April, I believe of 16. So some of that time in 15 was brand building and, you know, learning how to get I mean, I was the only person, right? Jay at that point was still working somewhat part-time. Mm -hmm. um, Jean-Nicolas obviously working full-time, both very supportive and engaged, but you know, I was the one figuring out how do we get licenses in different states? Uh, what's that gonna look like? You know, all the tiny little pieces, how do we set up email accounts for the team? How do we, 
um, I don't know, just like all those little details that I had no idea <laughs> went into winemaking or owning a winery. So then on, in 16 in the spring, we hit the road. Jay always said the band's on going on tour. So Jean-Nicola flew over and the three of us did three different city launch tours. Mm -hmm. So we would go, we'd have a big party, we'd do a big tasting, tons of, the guys would do tons of press work. Um, we'd work with our distributors that were newly in that market launched. And we'd be there for, I don't know, three or four days and then we'd go to the next place and do it kind of all over again. Um, and it was a whirlwind, super exciting. And people were really excited about the brand. They were excited to meet the guys. And I was sort of in the middle of it all. I remember being on the airplane when we were flying from here to San Francisco and they were on either side of me, like asleep with their heads tipped this way, both snoring. I was like, well, this is my job. <laughs> I always joke on the emblem in the middle of our, like the Nicholas and Jay on the logo. Mm -hmm. um, so I think at that point, I was starting to turn into um, a bit of an on the ground sort of jack of all trades, sort of general manager kind of for Nicholas J. Um, and also sort of a handler, right? Like dealing with all the stuff so that these rock stars, these amazing people could be the voice of Nicholas J, could be the face of Nicholas J, could do all that high level sort of work mm -hmm. and everything would continue to work on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's when I discovered my love of sort of logistics and all these different pieces and how dynamic it was and I think the reason that I struggled in my position at Adelsheim was it felt so small mm -hmm. and so singular. Mm -hmm. And I love with this company how the learning is endless and there's always so many different things to do, so many different facets mm -hmm. of work. Um, so yeah, that's when it really got busy. It was that spring of 16 when we started to have to sell wine. You know, and I kept thinking back to my days at Darby, like this is why I didn't want to start my own winery, you know, which is the question I get every day now. Um, because you're on the road all the time. You know, you're, you have to constantly now, you have to constantly be on social media. You have to be selling yourself. You have to be branding yourself. And that overtakes so many of the other things that you want to or need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, and that's when we started hiring people too. I think we hired our first, so then I started doing all the DTC tastings in the cellar at Adelsheim. And after maybe six months of that, it was like, okay, I can't do all these different pieces. We brought up on our first DTC person, we had an accountant, um, and we've slowly kind of grown from there. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what the sort of the goal of Nicholas J was from the start. Was that what was the what was the style? What was the what was it you were trying to present that wasn't already being made? What was special about about the wine and about the kind of the presentation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that in some ways it's tough to answer because everyone's wine is special because it's made by them, mm -hmm. right? And in Oregon, it's so neat because so many people work with so many of the same vineyards and people are so open. You know, if someone's buying the block of Temperance Hill next to my block, I am more than happy to tell them exactly when we're gonna pick, exactly how we're gonna make wine because it will not turn out the same, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it was about bringing John Nicola's voice to Oregon, making what he thought were gonna be world-class Pinot Noirs, that this region has a potential to make world-class Pinot Noir in a method that is feels more old world, feels more Burgundian. And to us, that's always meant um, more restrained alcohol, brighter acidity, um, well-managed tannins. I think the tannin management that comes from Burgundy is so phenomenal because they've had to deal with fruit that's not as ripe throughout history. Um, and the authenticity of making wines that we want to drink, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, 
we don't want to drink it, that's not the wine we're going to make. We're not going to be driven by sort of external uh, external powers of, mm -hmm. of how we're wines are supposed to taste, right, and the level of ripeness we're supposed to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that's probably still our constant battle, is that we tend to make wines that are lower alcohol, tend to be less in your face, right, which can be tough from a competitive reviewing standpoint, can be tough in a lineup, but the wines that we're opening now from, you know, 2015 are just stunning in their complexity. And I think it's that long-term reward, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to find your audience for that. We're lucky in that we have this natural audience from Jean-Nicolas mm -hmm. that sort of helped us to build out these concentric circles. Um, but it's still a less popular style, I would say. Um, yeah. What about your kind of own personal role? And obviously you said you're, you're the one doing the work a lot of the times, but yet some, someone else's vision, it's someone else's kind of making the call. You talked about from your very early on sort of seeing the difference between kind of chemistry numbers based winemaking versus kind of gut instinct magic winemaking. Uh, and so I'm curious how you kind of find your spot in there and how you kind of balance the, the two, the, mm -hmm. someone else making a lot of the calls and, and with your own, your own personal kind of style and, and, and desires, I guess. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we had a, a young man from Hong Kong, from our importer there who came and tasted, I think 12 months ago-ish. And I remember him, he was a beautiful taster. His palate was phenomenal. The way he talked about the wines was for me really intriguing. And I remember we got to the end of it and he said, it's like male camise with a feminine touch. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Ben, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but I mean, listen, you can't take me out of the wines. And I think Jean-Nic would be the first person to say that, right? Because like I said, so much of winemaking is instinctual. I don't follow, um, I, I don't follow a formula, especially during that fermentation period, right? And so everything is about me reacting to what I smell and taste and feel and the temperature and what I think is right. And I'm doing that within the framework of how Jean-Nicolas has developed his winemaking Mayo Camisé, mm. which personally I feel like is the way to make wine. My husband and I talk about that a lot. Like if we were to start our own brand, what would we do differently than what we do now? And the reality is I would make wine exactly the way I make it. So it feels very natural. Mm -hmm. I think if I were at a place where I was supposed to be doing all the winemaking on the ground in a style that I didn't believe in mm -hmm. or a way that didn't work for me internally, it would be very hard and I wouldn't be there anymore. Mm -hmm. But from very early on, Jean-Nicolas and I worked incredibly well together. He's very open, very collaborative, Almost every time I call him and suggest something, he says, why not? Let's try it, you know? Um, we speak the same language when it comes to winemaking. We taste very similarly. Mm -hmm. He's a phenomenal resource. So it feels like my brand, right? Mm -hmm. Nicholas J from the beginning has felt like my wine, my winery. Um, if someone, you know, if someone blinked their eyes and said, well, of course you have a third ownership. I'd say, of course I did all along, you know? <laughs> it's always felt like the three of us were a family. Mm -hmm. You know, we've just been through so much together. Mm -hmm. And it's been, you know, seven harvests now. And I can't imagine making wine anywhere else. I can't imagine making my own wine because I feel like I'm already there. Um, I realize that's not true. And probably that's the hardest part for me is finding that balance internally and making sure that I do have balance in my life because I tend to take it on as if it's my own. Um, and at the end of the day, it's not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that's a challenge for a lot of passionate winemakers everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I also get to go to bed at night not having to be worried about whether or not it's going to go under, you know. That I know is very challenging for a small business owner. So there's pros and cons, certainly. But um, I don't change anything about what I do because I'm making Nicholas J. wine and not Tracy Kendall wine. Mm -hmm. I think that what's amazing about it is that Jean Nick, or the hard part that has been amazing about it is that Jean Nicola pushes me to be better all the time, and Jay, all the time. Jay particularly is not one who accepts the status quo. Like, why do you do that? Because that's how we do it in Oregon. Well, great, let's try something better, right? Let's see, let's research. And so there's a constant push to be better, to spend more time, to be more meticulous, to try harder, to experiment with something. And um, as busy as we are, that can be challenging, but it's also a wonderful part of this job mm -hmm. that I think is harder to do when you're on your own because your day is only so long, you know, you need to kind of get through it. But um, having that support and sort of that constant momentum is great for me. Mm -hmm. And we've developed some amazing things that I don't know that we would have done if we weren't together as a team. Not giving away any necessarily trade secrets, can you give me an example of something that you've tried, that you, something that's either you've suggested or is, that you've added to the repertoire? Ah, that I've suggested. Well, there are no trade secrets. I have to think of something now. That's what I love about this industry. I know. <laughs> Again, it's like, <laughs> go ahead, try it. Um, I think one thing that I've contributed is sort of moving away from a more set formula for how we do cap management. So, you know, for during cold soak, we do two pump overs. During fermentation, we do three. This is how long we do them for. To let's not worry so much about that. that. Let's respond to what the wine is doing in the moment and let's um, learn these vineyards, right? As we're learning these vineyards, we now know that our estate, Bishop Creek, has a ton of tannins. So we need to pull back on extraction for Bishop Creek. Um, and you know, I've never gotten any pushback for that, and I assume that if Jean-Nicolas was here, he would do the same thing. Being able to have that sort of relationship with the wine allows for that kind of complexity. Um, I think m my role too, for better or worse, I often have to be the voice of reason. You know, during harvest, we've always, I know we'll get into this, but we've always shared space. So the first three years we were at Adelsheim, the second batch of three years we were at Sokol Blosser. So six harvests in someone else's house. And that's very challenging. You're talking about two big production facilities and we are like this tiny pea and we take more time than they do to make our tiny amount of wine than they do to make all their wine. Mm -hmm. And so I often have to be that political go-between and that person who says, okay, if this isn't actually improving wine quality, we need to question why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that analysis paralysis. We can keep gathering data and gathering data and doing things better, but is it really, what is the end result, mm -hmm. right? And if Sometimes you don't get to quantify it and you do it because you believe it's better and it's worth doing. But sometimes you have to be really honest with yourself that it, in taking more time, we're actually causing a degradation in wine quality because we have to pick one less vineyard today. Mm -hmm. And that picking decision is your first and foremost, most important thing, right? When you get those grapes off the vine, you can never put them back on and you can't pick them earlier. So nailing that pick decision is your first thing. And you don't want to mess around with that. That has to be priority number one. Um, we rent um, eighth ton bins as cherry bins and we only pick two layers into them. So the amount of bins that we need to pick a, a large quantity in one day, we sometimes don't have. So then do we compromise? Do we pick into bigger bins or do we wait and pick the next day? 
And that's a complicated equation of what's happening. Is it raining? Is it too hot? How much is the fruit going to change in a day? Um, being able to weigh all those variables and measure them and then make sure that the end decision is about ultimate quality, even if it feels like you're compromising in the moment. Because mm -hmm. it's triage, right? Harvest, not every year, but most years is some level of triage. <laughs> you set up your ideal system and then you make it work with the madness that sort of comes at you. And uh, you have to be able to be willing to pivot and know that it's going to be okay, right? But, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the, the sort of confidence it takes to get to that point. Not only, uh, not only to be able to make those kinds of decisions, make those kind of triages, but also to be able to make them, again, on a, someone else's brand. It's, it's still someone else's name on the label. And you're and you have to make these kind of these kind of decisions. What point do you? What point did you kind of get the confidence to make the decision? What what what? What point did you kind of recognize the signs you were looking for and and be able to make that kind of equation, complicated equation, work for you? That's like, yeah, I don't know exactly when that happened. It certainly did, and not ever, not all the time. I mean, I think if any winemaker tells you that they have confidence now to make decisions all the time, I would love to meet that person. Either they're way too arrogant for their own good, or they're lying to you. But, um, you know, I mean, last year was a perfect example. We got hammered with rain. The wines, the resulting wines are stunning, but it was very challenging. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, I was so thankful to be able to call Jean Nicola, who had gone through so many rainy vintages in Burgundy, and him to be able to say, it's going to be okay, you know, <laughs> let's wait. And not have to burden those, like, put the, all of that weight on my shoulders mm -hmm. for that decision making. Mm -hmm. um, I did not have that confidence the first harvest. We had never made a pick call in my life. And... I remember tasting over and over again, looking at the chemistry and talking to Jean Nicolas on the phone. He's like, at some point you just have to pick, you know, at some point you just have to do it. And we ended up picking really early that harvest, somewhat in reaction to the 14 vintage. The winemaker they had in 14 was much more of a riper style, sort of camp. And so they wanted to react to that to making a wine that was much leaner, mm -hmm. much more sort of old world and sort of Burgundian in feeling. And so we ended up picking really early, kind of reactionary that year. And I think we've found our voice and our style subsequently but remember that first maybe that first or second vintage my mom was like well who makes the who makes the picking decisions who goes out there and does all that i was like me mom it's just me she's like oh my god <laughs> um definitely by 17 i feel like i had sort of caught my stride i think six even 16 feeling more you know i had all the growing pains in 15 of being yelled at by the vineyard managers for saying the wrong terminology it's a shoulder not a wing you know that kind of stuff and seeing the year of the wines go through the decisions i made in 15 how they sort of evolved what they were like when they went into bottle just watching that cycle one year through i think created a lot of confidence mm -hmm. for subsequent years mm -hmm. But yeah, maybe 17, 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it takes a long time. Every year is a different level of confidence and a different, you know, different challenges. Like from 16 to 17, we switched facilities, which was crazy. I mean, your winemaking style is so dictated by the facility that you are in. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you've built it from the ground up or not. You know, you don't necessarily know the decisions you're making when you're doing that. Mm -hmm your winemaking is driven by how well you can control temperature, how big is the space, what are the microbes in that space, what are your pinch points, um, all the different pieces that sort of go, how much of it is gravity flow, um, 
and we moved into a facility that I, you know, I'd known at all times so intimately, both as an employee there and then as a Nicholas J employee, to this place where everything was different. And that was a very challenging harvest as well. Mm -hmm. 17, huge yields. I was six months pregnant. We lost our DTC person. She walked out three weeks before harvest. Um, my one intern left for a week in the middle because his grandmother died. It was, it was good. It was a rough one. So, you know, they, they ebb and flow. 18 was phenomenal, easy. After that, I would imagine. <laughs> Nothing will ever be as hard as 17, knock on wood, maybe this year, but. Yeah. Good, good segue. Let's talk about this year. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. we 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 know you have a new site coming up. So mm -hmm. tell us kind of about the the evolution of Nicholas J and about the new site and and sort of the plans with it. Yeah. So we've been looking for since seventeen for a facility. Um, we always really wanted to find a vineyard or a vineyard site that mm -hmm. could potentially be the best vineyard right in the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. This undiscovered sort of terroir and site. Mm -hmm. um, we also really needed our own production space. Uh, I think both the Adelsheim team and the Sokol Blosser team would tell you that we're a pain in the ass to have as roommates um, because of that level of meticulousness that we demand. And although they were both very kind to work with, I think they also were very quick to shepherd us out the door. Um, and we wanted the space to be able to do that too. And just, you know, leave us alone. If we're going to spend 12 hours sorting this one ton, we're going to spend 12 hours sorting this one ton. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've been looking for a while. Um, my husband actually is a real estate nerd and found this place on Redfin. So 53 acres up in the Dundee Hills. It's on the north side of the Dundee Hills. Again, we tend to pick early. We want cooler sort of chemistries. Mm -hmm. And so, although we love the Dundee Hills and we work with a number of sites here, um, it's, a, it's a hot place. So we end up always picking it, you know, a week or two before anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping that this north facing slope will help to kind of give us all the terroir and the expression of the Dundee Hills in a way that's a little bit more contiguous with our brand and sort of what we're looking for in winemaking. So there's about 26 plantable acres and then there was a beaut what looked like a very beautiful um, cattle barn. So it had been kind of, the land had been kind of cleared, a lot of it, and they were running cattle on it, Longhorn cattle. And there was a really old part of the barn and then there was a newer kind of show part of the barn with this great cedar plank siding, mm -hmm. board and batten um, that had just been built in 2016. And it was built gravity flow kind of into the hillside. Um, so we thought, my God, this will be so easy. <laughs> um, like many pole barns, we should have just taken it to the ground and started over with sort of the footprint, but we didn't. We didn't know that at the time. The building wasn't square and was not structurally sound. Mm. And the tasting room is on the third floor. And so obviously you have to get people there in an ADA friendly manner. Um, so there's been a lot of challenges, but we closed um, the Christmas before this one and then sat on it for about six months, figuring out construction, architect, and all of that. And then we're supposed to start in the summer, didn't get it together. And then luckily as, as sort of, um, craptastic as the 19 vintage was with rain by end of October it was just sunny and beautiful like unprecedented through October November maybe even into December I can't remember when the rains finally came mm -hmm. so they were able to do all the site work a huge amount of site work and then really start the building in earnest in March mm -hmm. so we'll be done like as the grapes are rolling in I think um, and have the chance to make wine in our own facility for the first time so it's been the most stressful thing I've ever done with or for Nicholas J or professionally, but super exciting, mm -hmm. super exciting. 
with that, does that bring about any change to uh, production size or, or, or style or, or, or sources? Is it, is, are you, you going to grow in the moment or is it just kind of a uh, future, future project? Yeah, we were planning on growing a bit this year. You know, when you're doing Custom Crush, you're paying by the case. So there's kind of this economy of scale as far as what you're doing. When you have your own facility, it's all about making more, right? Because you've already got this cost of running your facility. And the goal was always to continue to grow. Um, but it is 2020 and this is a time capsule. So we are in the time of COVID and wine sales, particularly for our echelon of wine, that our entry level wine is $65 a bottle, um, have been challenging. It's actually gone better than we thought. Um, but you know, we're making a lot of these decisions in April, which was a time when the world did not know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we pivoted to online sales and all kinds of things that have made it work, but we have gone back to exactly how much we were making in 19 for that reason. We were going to grow quite a bit in 20. Um, but we did pick up a couple sources this year. We picked up another, um, acre of Temperance Hill we're really excited about and wanted to grow in that vineyard mm -hmm. and then actually some old vine marsh fruit in the Dundee Hills which I think will be phenomenal mm -hmm. and then we will plant this vineyard slowly so Jean Nicolas actually has a nursery with friends in Burgundy that he's been working on for 20-30 years and he uses that to propagate vines for his vineyards there and so he's isolated vines that he thinks are really incredible that will do well in Oregon and he sent them over for quarantine so we will plant those as the years, as they're ready, as the years come along. So we'll have little bits of Richborg and Croparin too and all of that here in the north side of Dundee Hills. Um, and we'll plant some clones from, you know, the states as well. Um, so I think we'll probably start that next fall or the fall after, kind of metering things out and doing it in a way that we can manage. And as those vines come online, we'll be ready to expand production or move vineyard sources around a little bit. But right now we have Bishop Creek, which is our estate, and that's 13 acres. We sell off two acres of that, um, and then we source from seven other vineyards. So over the course of these seven harvests, we've gone from 11 vineyards to seven that we really love, and we've expanded within those vineyards, and that's kind of what makes up the core of Nicholas J. So we don't really want to lose those vineyards because that diversity is what makes the wine so mm -hmm. interesting, mm -hmm. right? the way that those layer together and, and play together but I'm sure it will shift over time. So earlier on, you, you talked a bit about uh, sort of breaking into the industry as, as a woman and, and kind of being pigeonholed into roles that maybe were not ones you were uh, looking forward to. Tell me about sort of your journey through uh, wine industry as a woman and, and becoming in, getting into production and getting in, in a winemaker role. Did you find it got easier as you went along? Did you find you had to continually prove yourself? Kind of take, take me through that, that kind of path. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't think it's been all that challenging for me. Um, I think in the beginning I was sort of getting in my own way of seeing something that was a benefit as a hindrance um, because I wanted to prove I was better than and stronger than and when I stopped needing to prove that it got much easier for me. When I started to be able to recognize my own talents and how those could be applied and not worry so much about trying to have the same talents as my husband in the cellar mm -hmm. and being able to leverage the people who did have those talents and work with them and partner with them, mm -hmm. um, it didn't feel hard for me anymore. Mm -hmm. I think I've been really lucky. I was in the right place at the right time for this job. 
and I work for two men who are incredibly respectful and incredibly empowering. Um, I think that there's still issues with salary negotiations and sort of value on that level. Mm -hmm. Would I be making more money if I were a man? Probably. Mm -hmm. um, would I feel more confidence to sort of demand that and set that up for myself? Perhaps. Um, and it's, su I mean, it's super challenging to be a mom in the wine industry. That I think has, so we had our son in January of 2018, mm -hmm. he's two and a half now, and that has added a layer of complexity that is above anything I could have imagined. Um, the balance is feasible. We have a lot of support, thank God, um, especially with both of us being in the wine industry and having harvest to deal with. And um, But there's still so much that falls to the woman, I think, and maybe not in every relationship. My husband is phenomenal, but you know, there's a connection and nursing and all kinds of things that are just tricky. And so that's added an element. But again, I have a very supportive team, which I appreciate and um, yeah, it's not something I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about. I feel like for me, I'm a strong woman who tends to like the challenge. I don't tend to be offended easily by people um, and tend to just want to keep working hard and keep moving forward and mm -hmm. partner with people who have strengths that I don't. Mm -hmm. Again, that idea of we don't have to be the same to be equal and really leveraging that and working with that and creating those relationships has been valuable. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that's the, it's, it's easier now in the Oregon wine industry uh, to enter as a woman or, to, or to, to rise up through the ranks as a woman than it has been in the past? I'm sure. I'm sure that people, you know, I've been to some of the seminars and some of the women's groups and, you know, Louisa Ponzi and, um, a lot of those women would tell you that it was very hard in the beginning, very hard, both because of the men in the industry and because of the other women in the industry. I think often we compete so heavily with each other that that can be a detriment too. Mm. Um, but Oregon has a, a lot of women. I think it's one of the highest um, in the world, maybe mm -hmm. outside of Italy. Mm -hmm. And you certainly feel that. It's not hard to find women in the cellar being super badass and doing all the heavy lifting. It's not hard to find female head winemakers um, or women in ownership roles or management roles. And I think that those role models, those people who broke through and continued to hire women and mentor women certainly um, have paved the way for us. I think we're all still doing the heavy lifting, but they really took that on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you have people like Susan Sokolblosser, right, who started one of the original wineries in Oregon and that created a legacy in Oregon for people to continue to, to do so. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of really dynamic husband and wife teams that are starting small labels that I think is really neat because one of the things that's so wonderful about men and women is the way we complement each other, mm -hmm. right? And the way our skill sets come together. Aaron and I talk about if we started our own brand, I mean, we're just so compatible in what we would bring to the table. And so I think if we can support each other and not worry so much about whether we are doing exactly the same thing, I think we can really empower everybody to be more successful. So on that note, since we're talking about sort of your, your future plans here, let's talk about your, how, how you see, uh, what you see for yourself in the future, next five, 10 years with Nicholas J and just sort of beyond. What, what, what are you looking ahead toward? Yeah, I, um... Will there be a, a, <laughs> your own brand at some point? Yeah, that's a good question. There may be. I think if there is, it'll be really driven by my husband, who seems to have more desire for that than I do. 
perhaps because I've been so intimately involved in the development of small brands and what that means. <laughs> um, Blissful yeah. ignorance. It's yeah. So nice. Isn't it so cute? <laughs> um, but no, I have no plans to have my own label uh, unless I'm forced to do so uh, when the kids are older, maybe. Um, it's very hard for me to imagine being anywhere else. It, I've been approached recently, I'm starting to be approached by wineries in California and different places and it's just very hard for me to wrap my head around not working at Nicholas J. Again, it feels like my winery, it is my family. We've been through so much and different staff and you know, it's like this constant is the three of us. Mm -hmm. And it's such an exciting brand to be a part of because the two drivers are just always moving forward, right? So we're always growing, always evolving. Mm -hmm. Um, the wines are so beautiful, the potential is phenomenal, mm -hmm. and so I'm not anywhere near done sort of seeing where we could go yeah. and, um, you know, what it's like to have our own winery and our own space, and mm -hmm. so I could easily see five years passing and nothing has changed, <laughs> you know, very much still looking up and realizing it's been five years. Um, long term, I would love to become more of a general manager, whether that's at Nicholas J or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of that work now without that title and I love that piece. I love managing people, I love all the logistics, I love the big picture, big thinking, creative ideas. How does it all come together? Mm -hmm. Keeping the wheels on the road more than I like one specific aspect. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I moved into a role that, like that that I would, if I would miss the winemaking and harvest. We recently hired an assistant winemaker with a new winery. I need that support. And it's weird even now because I'm so caught up in construction and keeping the winery go, everything with the winery going that, you know, I'm telling him what to do and he's going to the winery and doing it. And so I haven't been to the winery to see the wines in a month and a half. And that's just so strange for me. Mm -hmm. And so whether at some point that's gonna make, drive me back towards winemaking or away from winemaking, but, um, I think long-term, that's sort of the plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, obviously, the time capsule aspect of this. We're in the, in the midst of the COVID pandemic. I'm, I'm curious uh, how that has sort of affected your, your wine life, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, what have the effect, impacts been so far? And maybe what you see for the future, kind of, kind of dealing with the rest of and coming out of the pandemic. It's definitely been a very interesting time. <laughs> It's interesting because it's busier, yet more static. Like, typically you have, with when you're a winemaker, right, you have crazy summer vineyard stuff, and then harvest, and then from a and then like wrap up from harvest and all that stuff. And then you have like December, January, February of just kind of quiet. So with a company like Nicholas J, then we're kind of getting our wits back around us, talking about business, you know, sort of just regrouping. Mm -hmm. And then you start travel season for distributors, you start events, right? The barrel auction and salute and IPNC and OPC. And you know, it's every weekend there's something going on and all those committees and what that means. And then you roll right back into harvest. Well, all of that was canceled this year. I mean, I haven't traveled since March. I was in Seattle when <clears throat> the pandemic hit. That was my last sales trip um, and I, haven't gone anywhere for wine. We haven't done one event for wine. And so 
it's been really lovely actually especially having a small child right just being home mm -hmm. being home every weekend we have this calendar on our fridge that used to be like every day something and it's literally like he scribbled on it and that's all that's there and there's like one wedding invitation <laughs> so it's really relaxing i think emotionally but then there's this underlying stress right of covid and not knowing what it means both mm -hmm. for our health and for our economy and the fact that we've had to pivot constantly so I think every winery has reacted differently, but because Jay sort of drives this and Jay is such an entrepreneur at heart and such a brilliant problem solver and ideas and thinker that from the moment this happened, it was like, okay, how are we gonna sell wine? What are we gonna do? How are we gonna pivot? How are we gonna keep our employees? How are we gonna make sure we keep the doors open? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? He started IRS Records back when he was 18 years old at college. It's a great indie record label. And his quote from then is, as long as there aren't chains on the doors, we're still a company mm -hmm. and so that's always been the philosophy right like there's a lot of things we may have to do to get there but as long as the winery is still open we can continue to make wine and so there's been more work i mean i've been working 50 60 70 80 hours a week but, but all here and and a lot of it is just how do we survive and how do we function um i think we're gonna be i think we're gonna be fine i think the industry as a whole is gonna be fine i think that the ways consumers consume wine that they purchase wine the way they find out about wine mm -hmm. that's all evolving mm -hmm. and i think was maybe going to happen anyway but more slowly and over time <laughs> and i think as long as you can be nimble and are willing to react to that and sort of accept that i think you can be very successful in this new sort of climate um but you can't i mean 50 percent of our actual sales were coming from high-end restaurants. Well, that's not gonna be the case for a while and maybe never. If you talk to high-end psalms, they'll say never. Is that gonna happen again? So, you know, if that's the case, then where is that wine going? And how do we pivot our brand so that we make sure we're still accessible? Mm -hmm. And we've actually pivoted our tiers a little bit. So the Willamette Valley will now be 45 and then we made a L'Ensemble blend at 65, which is the better barrels of sort of all of the barrels that we have. Um, and that's allowed us to sell actually really well in FOB throughout this whole process. It allow, in my mind, it's wonderful because it allows people like my friends to try our wine mm -hmm. and become advocates of Nicholas J and then invest in more expensive mm -hmm. wines, but really be able to experience it. So I think that's a wonderful thing that's come out of it. Not something we were planning on doing, right? And that changes all of the economics. So then you've got this big shakeup, right? If your FOB is going out, you know, at $17 a bottle instead of $32 a bottle, where are you gonna make up that profit margin? Because for a winery like Nicholas J, we buy the most expensive fruit in the valley. We are the most labor intensive in the way we make wine. We have the nicest equipment, right? So your cost of goods is, is exceptionally high. It's not as if you're buying bulk fruit and processing it quickly to make that entry level wine. So we have to be able to if we sell a bottle of wine for $45 that cost us $65 to make, we have to find that money elsewhere. And so it's, that's the fun part and the dynamic part of running the business side, right? That's interesting and, and it's nice as a winemaker to have transparency into that because I think it can be frustrating sometimes for winemakers. Well, why do I have to make this wine? Or mm -hmm. why do I have to change the way I'm doing that? And so mm -hmm. I love being able to connect all those dots mm -hmm. and see how that all comes together. Uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen in, in the Oregon wine industry since you've sorry since you've been a part of it? Uh, uh, what, what, what's different about it now versus when you when you started working in Oregon wine? 
Well, when I came into Oregon wine, legitimately, which I'll say, you know, it's 2011, we were still very much coming out of the last recession, right? Our generation has had the joy of having two recessions. Um, I guess we're going to be in a big one. So uh, there weren't a lot of small labels. You know, you didn't hear about new people starting up a label every time you sort of turned your head. And it was really more about the classic established brands. It was hard to make money in wine. Um, there was a lot of fruit available. And all of that has been turned on its head. Um, and it was also still really easy to get into it as a young person without a degree and you know you didn't really have to worry about that and that's all really changed I mean this year aside is kind of either an anomaly or a new trend um, all of my peers are starting their own labels you know all of them <laughs> and people are coming from California and starting labels because it's inexpensive um, there's a real movement towards wines that are not Pinot Noir and Chardonnay um, there's a real focus on Chardonnay, which there wasn't so much in 2011. This idea of sort of more natural wines, hipster wines, let's explore all these different varietals, let's make them in ways that really push the boundaries. Maybe they'll be good, maybe they won't, but let's experiment. Um, that is really new in the last couple years. And I think is probably part of a pendulum that's going to sort of come back and settle down. But it's neat that there's room for a lot of different kinds of expression. And I think it's helping to put Oregon on the map in places that it wasn't before. You know, people may start and in, get into Oregon when they're, you know, 28 years old because there's a cool orange pet nap that they tried from Day Wines and then say, oh, I'm gonna, that was good. I'm actually going to try Pinot Noir from Adelsheim, right, and move into more classic brands and have, you know, the newer generations are so much more fluid in their consumption and their interest in wine, which is difficult because there's no brand loyalty but also exciting because there's room for people to really play and experiment and grow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people are starting to make money here. I think both winery owners are starting to make money. You know, if, if you are able to figure out how to run the business well, mm -hmm. and also employees are starting to make money. Mm -hmm. You know, that when um, Jackson family came in, there was a lot of concern about what that would do to the industry. And I'm sure that, that there are many people who would tell you that difficult things have happened. I think fruits become harder to find. But people are making real salaries now because you can't compete with that, right? You want to keep your employee and if they're going to be paid 20 grand more at, at Jackson Family, then you better step up. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of people who were making barely a livable wage making, you know, $100 bottles of wine here. And I think that's starting to change. It's still not there. I think grape prices and salaries are still not in line with bottle prices for Oregon, but it's getting better. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. more like, oh, we, we should provide health insurance. We should, you know, maybe have a 401k. Um, so that's great. Mm -hmm. It's like we're growing up a little bit. And I'm sure that, you know, David Adelsheim would tell you that that has happened in waves mm -hmm. since the 80s, right? That there's been these growth periods and then stagnant in these growth periods. And I think we, we were in a very dynamic growth period. Mm -hmm. We'll likely slow down a bit. Um, also in a really interesting sales period, you know, before all this COVID stuff happened, all those bigger old legacy brands were being sold. And so people were seeing that you could start a winery and then make a ton of money, you know, down the line, right, by selling it off. And that I think is really new for Oregon as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You say, you talk about slowing down with the pandemic. What else do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What is it gonna look like over, over the next decade? 
crystal ball. I know. I wish I had that. Um, I think that, I think it's going to continue to grow in the way it has at maybe a slightly slower rate. Mm -hmm. I think that the, what's happened is doors have opened for people to do different things, for younger people to get involved. Um, there's a lot of nurturing of younger people and younger brands. And I think, again, the consumer population is there for those brands, which is super cool. I think legacy brands will need to continue to revamp and work on marketing and stay relevant. And that can be very challenging. It's not just, I've been making wine in the Valley for 25 years or 30 years, so I'm going to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. You really have to stay relevant. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you'll continue to see very classic, you know, I, I would consider us to be a very classic style of Oregon Pinot Noir being very successful. Mm -hmm. And people who are making very alternative styles also being very successful. So I think it's an exciting place to be because there's a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. And I think the pandemic's only going to blip. I don't think it's going to... I was worried in the beginning of it that it was going to devastate so many of these new startup brands. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't think it will because I think those people have been just fine with online sales and the support's still there. People are drinking up a storm and um, yeah, I think we're actually going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. You mentioned one of your concerns earlier about sort of how much of your wine was sold in high-end restaurants and, and the concern that, that that might not be back for a while, if ever. Tell me about how you adjust to that long-term uh, for a company like yours, with it, which, is, which has higher prices. What do you see as alternatives uh, down the road if, if high-end dining doesn't come back or doesn't come back for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is we need to, what we have been doing is pivoting to more online sales. Mm -hmm. um, so making our wine available to those consumers to enjoy in their home. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually been really fun. It requires a lot more outreach from Jay and I directly from the winery, mm -hmm. really, you know, interacting with those consumers. Um, the tasting room, you know, we're going to be opening this new tasting room in October, and I think that's going to change things dramatically for us in a way that we can't quite wrap our heads around <laughs> yet. Um, being able to actually host people to become a part of the family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, High-end wine shops, you know, are still thriving. Mm -hmm. um, and pivoting price points a little bit, mm -hmm. and just kind of watching what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that the reason that we always wanted to have that focus was putting all your eggs in one basket. I mean, it's certainly better economically to sell 80% DTC through your tasting room because your profit margins are phenomenal. But if you hit a recession, you have one channel that's then closed down. And we have such broad exposure because of those restaurant placements and mm -hmm. because of those FOB markets. And, you know, we have 17 export markets that it's really important to us to always have a sort of 50-50 split. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just gonna have to be really conscious of what's happening in FOB markets, distribution, and where people are buying those wines. And if they're not buying them at high-end bottle shops, are they, is, you know, is the future gonna be really cool indoor dining halls that have a wall of wine where you can buy a $120 bottle of wine, but then you can sit and eat your burger. You know, I think that young people are wanting that anyway. Mm -hmm. the, the sort of high-end dining is slowly moving away, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it will always be there, but I think it's evolving. And it doesn't mean that those people don't want to drink high-end wines. Mm -hmm. It just means that they don't necessarily want to pay ridiculous restaurant markups and, ha and listen to a song talk about them, for better or worse, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, finding different ways to get that wine in those people's hands. All right, one more question for you. We're gonna get a little philosophical for you. All right. Uh, what is the role of wine in society? 
ultimately wine is and is an emotional connector right both for people and between people it's an experience um, it's something that is connected to your um, emotional memory so we've all had the experience of going well, most people going to a tasting room you're there with someone you love it's a beautiful sunny day you just had a great cheese platter you have this glass of wine you're like this is the best wine I've ever had and you buy a case and you go home and you're like this wine is shit <laughs> because it was all about that place and that time right and so I think if wine is being consumed properly it's about um, an emotional experience with food with people that you love mm -hmm. creating a sense of time and place it's a time capsule um, we were thinking about having another baby and I was you know, we're thinking about trying this spring and I wasn't really sure, you know, what I wanted to do and who has a baby in the middle of a pandemic. And <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine, William Kelly, who's a, a wine reviewer. We were chatting one day and, and they had just had a baby and he's like, I don't really think you should worry about it. And he's like, I just opened this bottle of wine from 1945. What do you think it, what it was like for those women, right? Having babies during World War II. I mean, there have been worse times in our history and there will continue to be worse times in our history. And he was able to taste a wine from a time that took him back there to have that sort of connection, right, mm -hmm. to, to people and time and place and events. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what it allows us to do. It's this living thing that's existing alongside us. Mm -hmm. Every time we open a 2011, Aaron and I remember that harvest, mm -hmm. right, and everything we went through. And, you know, we open a wine from Cassis where we went on an amazing trip and sat out on the bluff and talked about our future. And, you know, it will always bring us back to mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's beyond just an alcohol product, although that certainly is fun to consume for that reason, but um, it's connection to food and people and time and place are really beautiful. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't think so. I think that was good. Excellent, well, thank you so yeah. much for your time, for your hospitality on this gorgeous Friday afternoon. <laughs> And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.